0: Hello, Emily Reese. Hello, Jill Mott. Happy Earth Day. Happy Earth Day. It's like one of my favorite unofficial holidays on our calendar.
1: It's probably the best unofficial holiday that definitely should be a holiday. Yes. Yeah. It's
0: celebrated by almost 200 countries around the globe.
1: Yeah, loads of people around the world. It's amazing.
0: It started in 1970. That was the first year that people celebrated Earth Day. And it was actually inspired by a senator from Wisconsin seeing the oil slick. There was an oil spill off of the coast of Santa Barbara. In the year previous, 1969, yep, Yeah. and it was like 800 miles slick of oil. Wow. Um, And obviously, you know, when we all see like a nature documentary, you want to go change the world. Seeing a natural disaster from a plane makes someone want to change, you know?
1: Yeah, that's an insanely large slick of oil, and I'm glad it inspired somebody to do something about it.
0: I was going to talk today about like flowery wine, and then I was like, what about earthy wine for Earth Day? I was like, that's a <laughs> flipping stretch. Yeah. And then I thought about doing biodynamics, talking about biodynamics, but we already did that on a show. Mm-hmm. So I am going to, this is, I promise this isn't a wah, wah, wah episode, <laughs> but I'm going to talk about wine's environmental impact, which is mostly negative. So, what can we do to make better decisions in our wine elections to drink and beer and, uh, you know, et cetera. All the things. Yeah.
1: I'm going to talk about two composers, both living, both modern composers. Uh, One has a long, long history of writing music about nature. And the other is a much younger composer, but uh, also has written a piece that makes me think about nature. So that's what we're going to talk about. John Luther Adams, an American composer. John Luther Adams, not to be confused with John Adams. Uh, John Luther Adams is his own very individual and amazingly inventive and uh, well-historied composer. And a Swedish composer named
0: Britta Bistrom. So there you go. Sounds like it should be the name of a maple syrup company. Yeah, I mean, I mean, whatever. Do you can? Are you an environmentalist? Are you? Do you plant a tree or do you do anything for Earth Day or what's your mo in that regard?
1: I, I, you know, I on Earth Day, I can't say that I've probably specifically done anything since I was probably in school, but. I think I try to do the right thing in a lot of ways. I don't know. I do my recycling and my composting and love that.
0: If you're composting, you're like leaps and bounds uh, ahead of a lot of folks.
1: That's something I just started doing and it's one of my favorite things to do in the world because it it I just had no idea how much of my waste was actually food and mm-hmm. it it's just like, oh, well now I can just Put that in the right and paper receptacle and, and yeah, coffee
0: filters.
1: There's yeah, so many things. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I enjoy it a lot. Actually, surprisingly,
0: that's cool. I consider myself a environmentalist. Like I, you know, yeah. I wash out my Ziploc bags and I, you know, I do probably too many things to try to you know the the I make my own yogurt, so I don't have to buy all the single use. Plastic containers and all Mm -hmm. that stuff. Try to bike when I can. You bring
1: your own containers to the grocery store as well to do your bulk stuff.
0: It's true. I I have showed you some of those containers. That's it's hilarious. I put the little tag over the old UPC and I get so happy about (laughs) writing the tear weight and all that. But I get that from my grandmother. Right. My grandmother is probably one of my one of my heroes in life. And I just remember at a really early age without ever preaching, she was always kind of talking about saving the world and the planet. And, you know, up she lived up in the boonies in Wisconsin with my gran- grandpa and, like, what they would do. They'd go, like, I remember when I was 12, my grandma said, I'll let you drive the car if you help me pick up some garbage on the side of the road. <laughs> and so, like, i would sit on i would sit on a, I'd sit on a, <laughs> sit on a uh, what is it called? A, one of those big phone books back in the day. And yeah. I'd steer, yeah, and then my grandma would have her foot over the huncher, you know, and like whatever. <laughs> and then is a story I love to tell, and I'll always remember it, and this has obviously stuck with me to this day. So my father used to be in law enforcement, and my grandmother was, you know, trailing some just happened to be behind some guys in like a minivan or something, and they started whipping out fast food containers out of their window. Yeah. So my grandma takes down the license plate number. Circles back, collects their trash that's been happening now for a few miles on and off, picks it all up, calls my father, says, look up this license plate, give me their address and their deeds, which obviously is now very illegal and yeah. nobody really does that anymore because officers can get in trouble. Yeah. My dad's like, all right, <laughs> you know, you don't mess with the mother-in-law, right? Give her what she wants. yeah. <laughs> And my grandmother sends these guys all of their garbage <laughs> and like arrives in a big cardboard box. I was just like, that's, wow. my, gra- that's my grandma.
1: That's amazing.
0: I know. Yeah. So that's the, that's the inspiration for, one of the inspirations for why I love Earth Day so much and just a lot of, you know, the conservation aspect and mindset that she had and yeah. then some of um, my favorite people in life. So what are we going to drink today? An organically farmed cab franc. Ooh from Touraine in the Loire Valley in France. And I'll tell you why that's so great and not so great in a few minutes.
1: All right. Well, let's listen to some music then. I love that. Let's do it. Um, Let's start with John Luther Adams, born in 1953 and ended up spending a good deal of his adult life in Alaska because he loved the open expanse life of that. And he loves taking walks and contemplating nature. And his writing style, I would say, like kind of a lot of modern composers, focuses on, to me, in my ears when I listen, focuses on just the overall sound that or- or an orchestra can create and what kinds of, you know, whether it's a wash of sound or a particular combination of instruments what are we expressing here? Are we expressing a sound or a melody or, you know, and I I think of it more as sound, you know? Okay. And I think his music is absolutely beautiful. You've Um, interviewed
0: him, right? Like you've met him and talked with him and stuff?
1: Many years ago, I did a series with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, which is our professional chamber orchestra here in the Twin Cities. And they commissioned a piece from him called Become River. And that's part of what has become known as his Become Trilogy. His first piece was Become Ocean, then Become River, and most recently, Become Desert. And so Become River was commissioned by the SPCO, and he came here to premiere it. And I was uh, doing this series with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, aka SPCO, Uh, where I would interview composers and performers sometimes, depending on the situation, on stage at this really cool, trendy... I wouldn't even call it trendy. I just think it's a really cool bar in downtown St. Paul called the Amsterdam or Amsterdam Bar. And uh, yeah, we talked about Become River. I mean, that was probably in 2013 maybe, I think, Mm -hmm. is when that happened. Uh, So it's been many years now, but um, but yeah, I I really enjoyed speaking with him. And one of the pieces I want to talk about today from him is called "Lines Made by Walking." And he, you know, he'd go in the mountains in Alaska and hike, and so just the pattern of going up and down the mountain and walking along ridges is that's what this piece is. The first movement is all about going up the mountain. The second movement is all about walking along ridges, so there are up and downs. And then there's uh, walking down the mountain is the third movement. Uh, Let's go ahead and listen to a little bit of going up the mountain. Okay.
0: I sense so many things. First off, like when you're when you're climbing up a mountain or a cliff or something like that, you obviously have these, hopefully these peaks, right, where you or these these vistas, these unexpected vistas, where I, I kind of sense maybe that in the music, where it's a little hopeful or there's this little, you know, glimmer of something positive. However, I notice a lot of tension. It seems like tension, and then mm-hmm. sometimes this dip that sounds dissonant. Um, and I, it makes me feel like tight muscles going uphill, like the actual hiking
1: of a mountain, you know? Yeah, it's very literal music, mm-hmm. I think. And it's it's just really beautiful. Wow. This is not a full orchestra. This is a string quartet. I
0: was just going to ask that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: And, of course, some of the music is orchestral music. He's written all kinds of classical music. But, uh, yeah, this is just for a string quartet.
0: How long does this first movement chime in at? Uh, it's about eight minutes. Okay, And who is performing this right now? This
1: is an ensemble called the Jack Quartet, and they do a lot of modern music, premieres and things like that.
0: That I wanted to talk about wine's environmental impact. I, th- I think it's because on the 4th of July, I mean, our country's cool for a lot of reasons, but I think about family, you know, mm-hmm. and when I think of Thanksgiving, I think of sharing with family. What am I thankful for, of course? On Earth Day, I really try to think about how I could be better at the environmental, you know, awareness that I have. And I also, I do a lot of times think of my profession, right? Because wine. It does not really have a positive impact on the planet other than making people happy um, and and making, you know, uh, people transporting people to a place. Mm -hmm. They're not spending all that money to travel there, right? On a plane, but obviously the wine had to get here. So I want to point out why wine should be thought of like produce. Because we don't really, you know, I've got tons of friends that buy organic and they buy, they don't use single-use plastic and all these different things. Yep. But then they're buying, you know, tequila and wines from France and, and hey, I do too, yeah. right? But it's my profession. That's not to say I get that yeah. go-to-jail-free card or lack thereof. But I just think that we should be cognizant of the fact that Wine sort of gets this get-out-of-jail-free card because we all think of it as this agricultural product, this romantic idea, when in reality, a lot of it is not that way at all. And we've touched on that on and off a couple Mm -hmm. times in the show. But wine really is, can be so far removed from being an agricultural product, it can be a lot like as far removed as McDonald's beef is to, you know, free-range beef or, or cattle. And... I would urge you all to. I know I've recommended this movie to you and you've seen it, uh, the Mondovino, that was published in 2004. Jonathan Nossiter is the director. And, you know, it, it shows us the difference between farmers that are making wine. And yes, now grapes are considered, there's a lot of monoculture, right? And, and most people that are growing grapes and making wine, they're only growing grapes, right? They don't have like the whole polyculture going on. Yeah. But if they can, that's a really cool idea because of some things I'll tell you in the future. But I just I think that that's a movie that everybody that's into wine should watch because it really does instill in people's heads how far removed $12 wine is from Really being an agricultural product that you'd wanna that you yeah. wanna put in your body, to give people just a historical reference for when stuff like this started to happen. Like when did wine start to become modernized, pesticide, all that stuff that we don't like to talk about? So industrial revolution, we're like 1790s, right? Viticulture at this point, anybody that was growing grapes, it was likely a part of a bigger scheme of things, right? They would have on their farm, they would have cattle, they may have some chickens or they may not have cattle, they may grow some lentils, they may grow, you know, sell some things, but it's probably for their own consumption. And when we fast forward, it was really post-World War II and around the world, not just one certain country, but we see entire areas like Italy where people the whole center and south of the country was flocking north to go work in Milan in Venice in these in these bigger city centers Rome Firenze and the swath of land that is farm country is is was lost and so um, you'd have bigger companies come in and buy up that land and you know people would go up north to get rich or or live the American dream for lack of a better description. And then you'd have swaths of land owned by a lot of bigger companies. And that's when we really see like monoculture for grapes starting. And of course, then what happens, you have agricultural chemicals being brought into the picture, pesticides, which ends up, you get like healthier fruit in air quotes, but then you're degrading your soil quality and the health of your soil, you're making your soil dependent on said sprays, and many of which are government approved, which is sad, for subsidies, right? They'll say, hey, uproot all these vines Mm -hmm. um, that are maybe old and gnarly and don't produce as much, and we'll pay for you to do that, to Hmm. have more productive plants, which is unfortunate, and plant these specific vines. These are the ones that are approved. So now everybody's starting to plant the same stuff, Yeah, um, and you get this decline in variety, which usually ensures you know, the health of the species, as it were, mm-hmm. and just the dependency on all the things I just, I just mentioned. And I'll talk about mechanization in a second, but let's, let's listen to some more tunes.
1: Yeah. So let's go ahead and listen to the second movement of this piece by John Luther Adams called Lines Made by Walking. This is uh, called Along the Ridges. And one of the things I want you to try and listen for is repetition of the line. And that's all I'm going to say about that right now.
0: Okay. sort of maybe trying too literally to decipher what Mm -hmm. you just said so Mm -hmm. I'm listening for like a pattern in their steps that they're using like Mm -hmm. you know one, three, five six but then something gets dissonant and that kind of Seems to be happening on the same note, but I think I'm maybe trying to find it too literally. Yeah.
1: You know, it is a little... Explain, please. It's a little easier in the first one. Let's listen to the first one again, the first movement of this piece, and see if you can hear how the very first line you hear repeats...
2: start yep. over and over yep. and over again. Yep.
1: Now, this happens through the whole movement and they're all usually playing it at a different tempo. So this is a technique called a mensuration canon or a prolation canon. So we've talked about canon before. You and I have together sung Row, Row, Row Your Boat. Mm-hmm. And we demonstrated how canons offer imitation like that, where one voice starts, the other voice answers with the same line.
0: Yep. Row, row, row your boat. Row, row, row
1: your boat. Yep. But you and I are both singing in the same tempo, in the same note values, everything is equal. You're just starting at a different time than I
0: am. Understood.
1: Well, what if we did that, but you sang row, row, row your your boat at half the speed that I sang it, Now, we're not going to try that right now because it's probably not going to sound very good because that line wasn't written to be able to do that. Okay. Consonantly or in a manner that that works out. Yeah. Now, John Luther Adams really likes to do these types of canons and they're very hard. There are not a ton of examples. I mean, there are several throughout the history of music, but they're really difficult to write and to write well. And I was just like racking my brain before this episode to come up with one for you. And there are lots. I mean, I can come up with them from the renaissance period through the baroque era yeah, this into seems the very modern appropriate era
2: though
1: yeah and and i was like well this is what it sounds like in history the thing is is that they are really difficult to hear it's it's difficult to follow those lines through continually especially when there's four or more voices doing it mm-hmm. so it just turns out that this piece is way easier to hear it yeah <laughs> so i was like okay. well, i'm just gonna play this one because <laughs> we'll just play the piece that i'm talking about um because it's it's a little easier to hear so now let's listen to that first movement again. Okay. Cause I do think it is the easiest of the three to hear. Uh, and you'll be able to hear how that line will start in another instrument, but it'll play it slower or maybe a little faster or maybe offset by one note or something. It's very cool. interesting. Yeah. okay? And he does that with all three movements, but we'll listen to a little bit of the first movement again.
0: Tense. Isn't that cool? Yeah. I repeat, that's intense.
1: <laughs> it's amazing. And it is. So now let's go back to that second movement for just um, okay. 30 seconds or so and see if you can follow some of those lines because there's two lines in this one, right? Because mm-hmm. we're going up and down. We're going along the ridges.
0: Repeat. That's intense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Whoa. So beautiful, too. It sounds to me like there might be two lines doing different things, like two lines that are being echoed at different paces and different intervals. But are there? Is there one line or two? Are there two lines doing that? That's a good question. Sounds like
1: two to me. In in the second movement, to my ears, I hear two. I hear a a descending line and an ascending line. And that makes sense since we're, again, along the ridges of the mountain doing both activities, going up and down. So that's what I hear as well. In the first movement, I hear one line Mm -hmm. repeated between all voices, sometimes at different tempos, sometimes at different placement across the bar line. Um, but yeah and so the times when there's a clash are just times when the canon is overlapping in such a way that it creates that you know what I mean because you mentioned you heard dissonance and there is dissonance in here but overall um, you know it's it's very beautiful I think
0: You know what else would be beautiful?
1: To drink some wine. I would love that. I was thinking that in the last music section.
0: You know what I wonder is I wonder if my grandma would be a patron of Scores and Pores. Why? Because my grandma drank rum and (laughs) coke. My grandma drank daiquiris out of lemonade that she made from a can. She had like all kinds of stuff. She just was like doing the thing up there in the boonies. (laughs) And she didn't really listen to a lot of classical music. Okay. Maybe once in a while I'd hear a little opera or something. Oh, interesting. But I wonder if grandma was the type to support the granddaughter in whatever she was doing. For sure. So, which brings me uh, patrons. Yes. Thanks to our existing patrons. We couldn't do this without you. Definitely not. For those of you who would like to become a patron of Scores and Pours, we would urge you to go on to our Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash scoresandpours, and we have various levels of patronage. They all include patron-only content, which we're doing recipes, wine pairings, jazz and classical um, pairings with with those dishes. And then in some cases, there's even some merch that's going to get sent to you.
1: Yes. And on occasion as well, even extra content that comes from interviews and, and things like that. Some uh, leftover stuff that we didn't have time to fit in an episode, we uh, will give to our patrons as well. So lots of freebies and good stuff coming to our patrons. And, and again, yes, thank you to those of you who have already made that step. And we just uh, welcome the rest of you with open arms.
0: Anybody that's on Instagram, check out Scores and pores, all one word. We are on Instagram at Scores and pores, and you can send us a direct message if you have any questions for us, or you know, if you have any episode ideas, we'd love to hear from you. And rate us, of course, wherever you listen to your podcast. Well, this is going to be to wet our whistle because I'm going to talk more about why this wine is so dope. I'm excited. In a bit. But let me grace Mm. your glass with some amazing Cab Franc. The owner of of the shop at Henry and Son where I got this wine, Gretchen, said, I cracked it open and I smelled it and I thought it like whisked me away back to Brooklyn and drinking in natty wine bars. And I was (laughs) like, yep, (laughs) it smells amazing. Yeah, we have just a really light chill on this Cab mm. Franc, of which I'll tell you about. 2019, from the cent- center of Loire, to scores and pours. Two scores and pores. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, shut up. If cranberries were black.
1: Yeah. Oh, just thick in all the right ways, just packed with flavor. That's
0: all you want. Oh. That's all I ever want. It is so flavorful. I can't get over it. And it's not. It doesn't have a lot of that, like super uber graphite-y, pencil pencilletty. You know. Wow. And and that's probably a result of the carbonic maceration that this ha- that has taken place in this Ooh. wine, the intracellular fermentation, as it were. But we'll. I'll touch on that in a sec. I want to go back to depressing times uh, in viticulture because <laughs> <laughs> um, this is this is not one of them. I'm going to take another sip, quick. Mm. So around the time that we have the dependency happening or starting and happening on synthetic pesticides and fertilizers and all that stuff. We also have mechanization happening, which brings whoever is owning that land further away from what's actually happening because you just Get the machine in there to do all the harvesting and do all the spraying, right? Yeah now this increases efficiency, of course, but it decreases your product, basically your character or your terroir, because you're just kind of picking everything. You're not going through and being like, oh, this cluster is unripe. Or, you know, you're decreasing your overall flavor. Why your wine would be different than my wine, right? If all of ours is just a one big plot and we have a, you know, big machine that comes in and harvests it. Yeah. And some people would say that. All of these practices and really sterile, very clean cellars will, you know, increase the cleanliness of a, a, say, a facility, and therefore uh, the wine will be cleaner and maybe healthier. But in the end, you end up losing, I think, a lot of distinction. We decrease the characteristics, right, of with mechanization, with all these things that are happening in the fields and in the cellar that's like super pristine and super clean and cleaned with all the chemicals that are organic chemicals to clean, you know, a winery so that your winery can be organic, right? You're using organic packeted yeasts to Hmm. ferment your wine. It's crazy because people would say, well, that's makes a wine cleaner. makes it healthier. That quality is getting better. Well, it is in some regards, but most people would argue that you're just becoming a McDonald's, right? Where a McDonald's cheeseburger in Seattle tastes the same as a McDonald's cheeseburger in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. And this has happened the world over where Pinot Grigio from Italy can taste if not the same, I was going to say similar, but can taste exactly the same by what you put in it and what's happened in the fields as a Pinot Grigio that's made in Oregon, which is really quite sad. It's amazing Um, to me. Yeah. And I know I mentioned it before, but the subsidies and the selected vines that decrease in clonal selection and really healthy fruit can really make for vines to be more prone to disease and more prone to all the things that, you know, end up making people want to rely on these fertilizers. So it's just Mm -hmm. a a vicious cycle. And I know I'm talking a lot about kind of the agricultural side of things. And I have been asked before, like, well, so how much does that really account for like an environmental impact, like fertilizers, pesticides, chemicals in a vineyard? France has three, we'll use France as an example, has 3% of the entire agricultural landscape is our vines, viticulture. I
1: would have thought it was way more than that.
0: (laughs) I would too, but um, I think that this was like back in the 2010, 2015. Mm-hmm. But it accounts for 20% of the pesticide use in all of France. Whoa. I mean, wine is big business, right? Yeah. Like when, we, when it gets down to it, like we, you and I, we take almost for granted that we drink agricultural products on this show, mm-hmm. but most people don't. Here at home, a study showed that in, um, that in 2005, grapes. Agriculture and wine together was a hundred and twenty-eight billion dollar industry. Wow. So like we're not talking about, you know, I don't know, something less. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) People like to drink, right? Yes. (laughs) And we tend to focus, I think, on pesticide use because it's a word that people have learned to hate, pesticides and fertilizers and stuff like that. But that only really accounts for one-third of a wine's carbon footprint because the majority of wine's impact comes from shipping, you know, bottles, they can be recycled up to a dozen times usually. But in the end, here in the States, 70% of wine bottles go unrecycled. 50 billion cans go unrecycled. This is specifically talking about beer. And I look at my own laundry room, that's a communal laundry room at my apartment facility. And I see fucking plastic contain like laundry detergent containers in the garbage. I'm like guys mm-hmm. it takes 10 more seconds to walk outside and recycle it. Yep. And I'm sure yes there are towns that don't have recycling programs but that's few and far between. When we talk about shipping a wine, most wine is shipped in bottles, right? So, you, yeah, and you have bottles weigh a lot when we yes. pour out your wine into a different vessel and weigh your bottle. Now, multiply that by how many hundreds of millions of bottles are getting shipped all over, and that's just a lot of like emissions. Yes, that's why a lot of producers now of high quality wine are opting to do it in cans, they're opting to do it in. A bag in a box kind of situation, sure. Because they can try to recycle those things, but they weigh less. Okay, so I'm just going to do one wah wah, <laughs> and then and then we'll music, and then I'll wah wah again. You okay. ready? <laughs> Great. Yes. According to the Huffington Post, it takes about 34 gallons of water to make five ounces of wine. One glass of wine, 34 gallons of water. What? winery now th- think of this w- I've worked in wineries yes and many around and, the world yeah irrigation if it happens in a winery or excuse me on a on, in a vineyard is usually unless it's flood irrigation that happens like in Australia and stuff like that irrigation is like one of the least culprits of excessive water use it's usually like insane amounts of cleaning that, yes, you need to make sure that things are clean, but some people are using, like, huge garbage bins full of water to do all these five-step processes, three-step processes to, like, clean stainless steel. When, in reality, you don't need to do certain things. You can get away with less, slightly mm-hmm. less cleaning, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, 36 billion bottles of wine were produced a year. In 2012, according to Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, that is 180 billion glasses of wine per year. Okay. So, I'm going back to the last. Yes. So, that's 6 trillion gallons of water are spent to make wine a year, according to those few sources. And I've cross-referenced, and there are a few that say a little less, but there are many more that state around this number. 6 trillion Gallons of water. So when I'm buying wine on the regular, I usually am like, "Whoa, Jill, you sack of shit!" <laughs> like you, and then I try to, you know, I try to tell myself it's my profession, and I share, and I yeah, educate, and I buy local wine, people yeah. buy bag and box wine. Yeah, are, are we doing that on the show? No, no, but we're well, gonna we're gonna talk about the farmer that we're supporting. Yeah, who tends to his own land. Mm-hmm. He isn't a flying winemaker that flies all over the place, like, yeah. you know, whom, people I don't want to talk about and wearing right. a suit and getting it done. He's driving 12 miles to his vineyards, yeah. driving back, working the stuff by hand. Yeah. Okay. Get ready, because that's the tip of the iceberg in terms of water usage and stuff. Just get ready. Okay. I'm going to drink some wine. Good, because it's delicious. And then let's listen to some music. Okay.
1: Well, let's go ahead and listen to this last movement of Lines Made by Walking by John Luther Adams. Now we're going to go down the mountain.
0: Well, I hear dissension. Yep. I hear not so happy muscles. Yeah. <laughs> so, am I hearing right that this is like the first movement, where there is one line and it's happening slower or faster, mm-hmm. different intervals? Okay. Yes.
1: And it well, resets. Again. Starts again.
0: Why he chose a string quartet as opposed to a different different instruments or set of instruments?
1: I'm not entirely sure why he chose to do a string quartet instead. I do know that it's his fifth string quartet, and I also know that he didn't even start writing for that um, ensemble, for the string quartet, until much later in his compositional life. Uh, But you definitely can probably find out more on his website, which John Luther Adams is his name, so... And yeah. I think I saw that you can
0: purchase his music there. You oh, can yeah. check out some YouTube stuff, which is which yeah, looks like a cool website.
1: There are a lot of recordings of his on available for purchase, and I mean, it's it's really beautiful music. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, let's fall down the mountain here, literally, <laughs> as we go to some fairly solemn, and I guess I, I was going to say solemn statistics about wine and beer production, but I did want to say. Not only can we support you know we can buy different format wines we can and beers, we can buy local, mm-hmm. right, but um especially one thing I wanted to mention is by drinking less and drinking better, like there are you know and i obviously there are many people all over the world, I know I'm an exception of someone that doesn't like do I drink to get happy? Sure, once in a while it's fun, but like instead of drinking a bottle of wine or two bottles of wine and three glass how much people drink, yeah. Some people just drink one glass of wine a night. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Maybe drink one glass of wine every other night and instead of spending $12, spend $18. Yeah. And, you know, support. Because if you are buying winemakers' wines that are farmers, a lot of times that costs a little bit more money because they are doing things by hand and they are relying on nature to do a lot of the work as opposed to fertilizers and stuff. Right. Right. So beer. Beer. 2009 source. Says that it takes twenty gallons of water to make a pint of suds. Okay, I just can't. I mean, I
1: know that includes more than just making the beer, but I'm just like, why?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, because if you think beer is like ninety percent water, obviously, but yeah. you have the whole like everything. It's just cleaning. It's all the cleaning, obsessive cleaning. And you got to grow
1: the hops and the barley and the stuff, and that too. Things. Yeah.
0: So if this is correct, in 2019 there were 52 billion gallons of beer made. Oh, wow. So that means, doing the math, there are 416 billion pints of beer were made a couple years ago. Now multiply that by 20. I can't. 416 billion times 20. People are not, they don't have safe drinking water. So if (laughs) (laughs) if we're like, if we're drinking beer and we're drinking wine, we are very fortunate and that's awesome. And we shouldn't not do that, you know, obviously. Yeah. But just... Make some smarter elections. Yeah. I have it here in my notes. I was like on a rant. I'm like, if we're gonna semi trash the earth at the expense of our minds, palates, and sanity, what blah blah blah, (laughs) Jill. Just whatever. Another thing. A lot of people are getting snowed because how many times do you go to a little wine tasting at your local liquor store? There's someone in a suit, someone in a dress. Someone heals and they're like, here, try this, whatever. This wine began in the vineyard. Did it though? Yeah. Did it really begin in the vineyard? I've talked to people like this and once in a while, if I go to like my muni just to check it out, see what's going on there and there's someone yeah, standing behind the counter, they don't know who they're dealing with. Yeah. And they're like, this wine started in the vineyard. And I, ask, I say, wow, that's awesome. Do you know how many plants per hectare were planted? And they look at me, and then I'll be like, do you know how much water they're using to irrigate? Are they irrigating? What pests are they, quote-unquote, treating this month? Yeah. And they just <laughs> they just kind of look at the person to my right and keep pouring. Anyway, so I guess I'm done. I'm going to talk after we, if we need to talk about a little more music or what yeah, we're going to yeah. do. Awesome. I'll get to Laurent Lebled, who I've Good. admired for years. The farmer. The farmer, yep, and the, the winemaker who's made this wine. But I just wanted to put some... worms in your ear, some tidbits, because I just want people to think the next time they go to buy a bottle of wine, they're casting a vote. You know, they're making uh, an election. So choose our earth this time. You won't be disappointed. Ask questions of your local wine shop. Go to a locally owned wine shop. Mm -hmm. Don't go to the big box stores because they probably won't be able to answer your questions. They'll probably tell you wine's made in the vineyard (laughs) and then not have anything else to say about it. Which, if wine is made in the vineyard, we should have plenty to say about it. Which yeah. I will in a second. Good. Musica, musica. This last piece we're gonna hear. <laughs> <laughs> I was doing a, what was that movie with uh, Will Ferrell where he like? Does well, this it was one a night. Saturday Night Live skit. I know, but what Saturday was
1: it? Night? To, I don't remember. I don't where remember. they were like at the Roxy or something? I can't remember. Where what they were
0: dressed called. in the silver? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, the lounge, yeah, And so I was just with like that doing guy. that. I was she like, she was doing Mousica. the Musica.
1: Yeah, Music. it was a little blast from the past. Okay, so let's, let's do it. So the last piece I'm going to talk about today reminds me of nature because it's called A Walk After Dark. And this is actually, I guess, a viola concerto is what you would call it because there's a viola soloist throughout the entirety of the piece. It's a hefty piece, 20, 25 minutes, somewhere around there. And this is by a Swedish composer, and her name is Britta Bistrom. And she was born in 1977. She started off as a trumpet player, which I love because, of course, I'm a trumpet player too. And she uh, tells this very endearing story about how she would go to her trumpet lessons and she will have made up a little melody and she'll play. She would play it for her trumpet teacher and... I think at one point he said, well, if you write it for two trumpets, we can play together. And so she started writing trumpet duets when she was really young and I guess wrote many of these things for her and her teacher to play, which is so cute. So she had this very encouraging teacher, you know, just, yes, you should compose. Get out these creative ideas. And so that's how that started for her. And eventually she realized that she really loved the sound of an orchestra. And she is... um, I I do think there are composers who don't really think of the orchestra as one being. They think of it as you know sixty musicians, or and does maybe, she think of it as
0: one being? I think
1: she does. Yeah, I think it's like it's like,
0: Britta, we're coming after you. <laughs> we're going to interview you. <laughs> Live, live. get vaccinated. <laughs> Let's do this.
1: <laughs> We're going to Sweden. But uh, no, she I think she does. I think she thinks of it as I was not very eloquently explaining earlier about how, you know, John Luther Adams music is very much about the sound that you're hearing at the time you're hearing it. And that sounds like such a stupid thing to say, but it really is a unified sound as opposed to, Oh, listen to what the flutes are doing over top the cellos. This is the combination of the sound. And I just, I love the energy that's in her music in particular, this piece. And, you know, I, when I hear it, I think of it being titled a walk after dark. I think of, you know, walking at night or in the middle of the night or perhaps in the very early morning before the sun sun comes up and all the sounds that you hear and in no way scary although there are moments of tension throughout this piece mostly it's the sound of curiosity and i, I don't know let's listen to a little bit of it she wrote this in 2013
0: Does kind of happen like that, right? Like when you're walking in nature, or, or walking in the morning, even if you're in an urban, uh, fairly you know urban place, but maybe it has the sounds of birds and whatnot. Yes, it's like you might hear one or two birds, but all of a sudden there's like this cacophony of like just things talking to each other, or or, or sounds of you know the wind comes and it picks up and it blows and mm-hmm. and carries a lot of leaves or debris with it, and so yeah, that's yeah, I like how it is sort of isolated and then yeah picks up and yes I love that there's this also this attempt at like a melody and then there's not mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um like something that could possibly get stuck in, in your head like yes. earlier a cardinal was singing and i had it kind of stuck in my head
2: yeah
1: It's so beautiful to me. One of the things she talks about is that she loves the upper range of instruments. And it's really fascinating to hear this because being a viola, a lot of times you would assume, whether rightly or wrongly, that a composer is going to enhance the qualities of a viola that differentiate it from a violin, Mm -hmm. which would be its low register. Because a viola has lower strings than a violin. Yep. And I love this piece because it, it does that, for sure, because, it's, again, it's a longer piece and the viola is all over the place, but generally speaking, it, certainly in the first section of this piece, the viola is really hanging out in its upper register, as are many of the other instruments, and it's, it is an interesting, fascinating take on the sound of an orchestra.
0: Yeah, there's so much happening at once. And playing with rhythm, like, that's really fun. It's a really cool piece. Stops and starts Mm -hmm. like you would on a walk. thing to note, please don't go into your local establishment and say, can I get an organic wine? (laughs) Please don't do that because you're going to get likely, yes, the grapes have to be 75% or depending, 85% organic grapes. That's awesome. Better that than nothing, right? Yeah. But they can totally go into the cellar and manipulate the shit out of that wine, and you're basically getting the sandwich cookie... Organic version that you'd spend way too much money at at Whole Foods. Just go buy the Oreos yeah. and be happy with the Oreos. You know, <laughs> you're gonna have plenty of ingredients that you can't read. It's just gonna say organic before that yeah. in the seller. Wow. So you know, just ask ask more questions. Your organic is kind of 1974. Okay, like, you know, yeah. Let's there's more. There are more questions to ask. Okay, that was a real rant soapbox. Let's talk about Laurent Lebled, shall we? Yes, Laurent, farmer Laurent Lebled. Go li- online and look up this dude because this guy's so awesome. <laughs> He's located, like I said, in Touraine, which is in the center of the Loire Valley in northwestern France. And he started making wine a little bit after 2008. He was a wood merchant, worked in the wood industry, and there was a huge recession and there was no work for him. Uh, A couple of his buddies had been making wine and they were in other professions as well and they had turned to winemaking and like tending to vines and they found it to be very therapeutic. And so I think two years later, I think 2010 was his first vintage, so... Congratulations, you've made it 10 Vintages of Blood, and your wine is very well known (laughs) in the natty wine community in the United States. His buddies were like, dude, Laurent, you'll love this. And he was like apprehensive. And they're like, let's just, we'll help guide you. We'll help show you. He he doesn't come from a not only a winemaking background, but his parents didn't own vines, which is like a big deal. Because if your grandparents were hanging out in vines, you probably at least had some sort of connection there. Mm -hmm. And now he owns eight. To ten hectares, he's like I said, a twelve-minute drive from his his vines. He's got one parcel that he could not say no to that he's owned from the beginning, and it's like, I think maybe an hour, hour and a half drive from from his place. But and I when I was talking about just flying winemakers, I've I've worked for one before, and I, I was down in New Zealand, and he like would blast in from California, <laughs> spend a day, tell us all what to do, and then he'd blast out, and I was <laughs> like. And I worked on a biodynamic vineyard. I was like, how is this good for the environment? We have cows. I'm playing with shit hmm. and all this to make our fruit better quality. And then we got this dude just like flying in a few times a year, just like tell us what up. Wow. Like whatever. This wine is called Honest Sous le Sable, which means Ooh. we're on the sand. <laughs> Why? Sandy soils. You oh. can tell this wine is very fluid. Should I put some in your glass? Please, thank you. Yes, but it's also an old term for the drink running out. <laughs> <laughs> We're on the sand. <laughs> yep. it's just kind of great. That's amazing. Because with this wine chiming in at 12.8%, so it's, you know, considered a light to medium-bodied red, but it's definitely like a quaffable red. Yeah. You could think a lot about it, but you could also be like outside playing some cards on a day like today in Minnesota and be like, <laughs> so I kind of want to use that next time that I've maybe drained a bottle of wine with a few friends. I want to be like, "Honest to la sable. Like, they're going to be like, your French sucks. Yeah. They're going to be like, we ought to drink. <laughs> What's going on? To scores and pours. To scores and pores. So what do you think of the nose now that you know that it's Cab Franc? I'll tell you more about the organic fruit and winemaking in a second. But what, what do you think of how the nose It smells.
1: It smells it reminds me of like a little bit of like cherry lip balm. Or like Yeah,
0: kinda, but not in a fake. No, not in a fake way. way. Yeah. Like yeah, like
1: a biodynamic lip balm. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause it's got a little of that um like lipsticky thing. Yes. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. What about yeah. um what about do you get the horse hoovy? Like I do get there's like a definitely an earthy quality yeah. that's like Wet soil meets like outside in the summer or in the Mm -hmm. spring when you kind of you don't smell compost you smell like fresh earth yes you know yes Mm. Mm -hmm.
1: and then all the dark dark red Mm -hmm. fruits and berries that I smell and taste honestly oh it's very thick again I I, and I don't mean that pejoratively at all
0: no but do you mean thick because I don't see I don't think it's thick I feel like it's very fluid like the wine is just like yeah. it's It's got medium acidity. There's definitely some tannin. Yeah.
1: The th- flavor is thick. There's so oh, okay. much flavor. There's so much yeah, flavor. The okay. texture is not thick. The, okay, cool. The flavor is thick.
0: Yeah, because I wanted to... I think the flavor is very... Be, that probably could be due to the fact that these are 50 to 70-year-old vines, so it's very intense. Mm. This is whole cluster fermentation, and in tandem there's a 24-day carbonic maceration. So three weeks this has been on this not only whole cluster but in the absence of oxygen. Oh. So we have a ton of intracellular fermentation that has not only increased the aromatics of this beautiful little wine, but it has decreased the acidity and the tannin. So you just have this like what we would call in French in the natural wine world like this gluglu glu wine, right? You can just kind of like glug, glug, glug yeah. and not really think about it if you, you mm-hmm. know, which is a crime because this wine is so great. <laughs> um, but it's got this beautiful just like slick quality to it. And I think that is because of the carbonic maceration, like bringing the texture down a little bit, that's a quality of that intercellular fermentation. One of the reasons why winemakers choose to do that, but also sandy soils can exhibit that. So you have these two things working together to make this just a really smooth, fun drink. It's unfined and unfiltered, no sulfur added to this. Mm. And how fun is this wine label? The artist of this wine label, his name is Michel Tolmer. He's just a very esteemed artist in the natural wine world, and his the labels for Le Bled, they've become kind of popular. And so this guy has gone on to design for other winemakers for you know wine fairs and and posters and stuff that you Fun. see. It's just a cool way, you know. Everybody's gotten their friends involved. The buddy has yeah. got their friend making wine. Yep. The friend hired this dude to you know do yeah. his labels. Yeah, I think he's a, he's we'll a really We'll post a cool. picture of it. Sure. Yeah. Mm. It's so good. I'm trying to draw a parallel between this and the John Luther Adams piece because there is this sort of beginning and end, this like one line mm-hmm. that you definitely smell and you taste, and it follows all the way through the finish. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's it would depend on maybe your ability to, like what you discern when you're tasting it, to be able to draw those different are you going faster, are you going slower, are you up here, or are you down there? Mm -hmm. If you're a smoker, if you just ate, or if you didn't eat, like you're going to be able to perceive things differently. Mm -hmm. But I think there is this one note, or this one line, better said, that connects the beginning to the end, which doesn't happen in all wines.
1: No, I think there are a lot of wines that have very angular, um, when you taste it, it can take you in a bunch of different places right off the bat. And toward the end, it can some other flavor can pop out or this and that. And with this wine, I do feel like it's one continuous line. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, do we have anything else to s- chat about music-wise? Yeah, I mean, just
1: let's be clear. There are no shortage of examples of music based off of nature. So have fun exploring that all the way back hundreds and hundreds of years, whether you want to find music written about weather events like storms. Uh, whether you want to find music written about the ocean or water, if you want to find music written about animals, if you want to find music written about pollution and the state of the world today, there is no shortage of music being inspired by the earth. So cheers to Earth Day and to, you know, picking up your trash and putting it in the right place. To Mother Earth.
0: To scores and boars. Scores and pours. Love you, Grandma.
1: Thank you for listening to Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links, playlists, wine list, information about the episode. You can also support us financially, which would be greatly appreciated, and thanks to those who already do, at patreon.com slash scoresandpours. Also, our merch list for hoodies and tees there. We're on Instagram at Scores and scoresandpours. Please consider supporting the musicians and composers that we featured today by buying their music. Edited by Emily Reese
0: and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sir Sam Keenan. Scores and Pores is a production of June Media Inc. Jill. June.
2: Little kid.